Well, as we turn to God's Word this morning, we are uh, for the last week in 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 18 to 25. Um, Again, we've been in this uh, for for four weeks now. The first week, we just focused on the very text, and then for the past uh, two weeks, And for this morning, I've been addressing various objections that uh, our modern culture that we here in this room probably have uh, to this text. So uh, this morning, I want to address the objection or the question of how should we as Christians be active in social change? Can we be active in social change? Again, 1 Peter 2 verse 18, we'll read this whole passage in a moment, but it begins by saying, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so just as I was reading this, I was just realizing that, you know, anyone who's reading this text who isn't already bought in to Jesus Christ as a Savior, as a Lord, is going to read that, and they're going to find that highly offensive, right? They're going to say, why is Scripture telling a servant to be subject to his master instead of just calling for the abolition of slavery in general, instead of just calling for an end to servants and masters. Wouldn't that be the better thing to do? And of course, as we've seen in our own nation's history, Christians were very active in the abolition of slavery. Christians were very active in the civil rights movement. And so how do these things go together? How does it go together that we as Christians can be active in terms of social change, in in terms of just changing society for the better, changing law for the better, And at the same time, how can we be obedient to a text like 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25, where it calls servants to be subject to your masters? So I just want to try to put these things together this morning and ask this question for us. So we'll begin uh, by reading 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. Pat will read that for us. After that, Nate will come up and read for us from Philemon 8 to 21. Now, the reason why we're going to Philemon is uh, Philemon was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a person who was a slave owner, Philemon, and he had a slave named Onesimus who uh, was with Paul, and Paul was returning to his master, Philemon. And when Paul returns Onesimus, he gives Philemon instructions for how he should treat him, how he should treat his servant. And so what I hope we see in that passage in Philemon is how the gospel, how the teaching of the New Testament does this work to undermine slavery, to undermine the servant-master relationship, and so how the gospel itself is kind of leading to broader social change. So that'll give us this basic framework that I want to present in my sermon for how we as Christians, through the gospel, work for social change. From there, we'll go to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Sadie will read that for us. This reminds us that when the gospel comes to us, it does not come only in knowledge, it doesn't come only in word, but it comes in power and in deed. The gospel changes our hearts and changes our actions. And so again, this shows us the way that the gospel itself brings about social change, because it doesn't just change ideas, it changes our behavior. And then finally, Shauna will read for us from Isaiah 58, sorry, it might say 68 in your bulletins, but Isaiah 58 uh, verses 6 to 10. And this is just a beautiful passage, kind of showing the expansiveness of the Gospels, of Scripture's call for justice. And so the expansiveness of what we as Christians can desire and work for as we work for social change in our nation and in whatever other area the Lord places us. So let's listen together to the reading of God's Word. And again, then I will come up and preach for us on this issue of Christians and social change. So Pat, come on up. 1 Peter chapter 2, 18-25 Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Philemon verses 8 through 21. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he may serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. They say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five to 27 I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isaiah, Isaiah 58, 6-10 through 10. Is not this the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noon's day. Well, we live in a nation that's roiled by people seeking various social change, do we not? I mean, it wasn't very long ago when uh, Black Lives Matter was all over the newspapers. You know, that was an organization that was seeking one kind of social change. Uh, even now, there's many different LGBTQ plus organizations that are seeking social change. On the other side of the aisle, we have organizations that are fighting abortion, fighting for social change. Then we have organizations like Oath Keepers, whose leaders have even been put in prison, who are seeking a different kind of social change. Indeed, we live in a nation where people all over the political map are seeking social change of one kind or another. And so it's a very relevant question to us as a church, is it not? What do we as Christians do about this whole just quest for societal change around us? Do we get engaged, get involved, and kind of put in our lot with some organization that's working to pursue some kind of political change? Do we try to stay totally above the fray, out of the fray, saying, no, uh, we don't care about these things, we don't think about these things, uh, so we're not going to talk about this? Is it somewhere in between? Uh, We all know many different churches, especially when COVID was going on that seemed to be just torn apart by different Christians answering these questions in different ways and therefore thinking, oh no, we just can't worship together because we think so differently about these questions. And so these are very hard issues and these are very relevant issues to us as a church. And so I hope that I can address them in some small measure this morning. Obviously, this is a subject that is very vast. You know, books and books have been written on the subject, so by no means am I going to be able to answer every question, but I hope to give us a basic framework so that we will know how we, together as one body, can approach some of these difficult questions. Uh, now, kids, just to try and put this in, in your lingo or in how you might understand this, is I'm just trying to answer the question 
that a lot of people are doing really bad things in the world, right? And what do we as Christians do to change it? Do we worry about bad things happening in the world? Do we try to change the bad things that are happening? Or is our job a different job? So that's kind of what I'm talking about this morning. What do we do to try to change those bad things from happening? Where do we uh, get invested? So the the basic answer that I want to provide that I'm going to flesh out uh, for the duration of this message is that we as Christians should work for social change, but always as secondary to gospel advancement. We as Christians should work for social change, but always as secondary to gospel advancement. So when we see wrong things happening in society in some way, should we care about that? Yes, we should care about that. Should we try to change it? Yes, we should try to change it. But our efforts at changing it, our efforts to affect law or affect society or anything like that, always need to be secondary to the job that we have of proclaiming the counsel of God, proclaiming the gospel itself, the word that God has given us in these scriptures here. And so it's not an either-or thing, like, oh, we just do gospel work, we don't do social justice-type work, and it's not do, we do social justice-type work, and we don't worry so much about the gospel. Rather, we focus on the gospel, that's our heart of hearts, that's where our deepest treasure lies, but then alongside that, as we have opportunity, we do pursue social change and social causes. So that's the basic position that I want to advance to us this morning. But again, I want to start with 1 Peter to kind of see how I get here, see how I don't have to contradict 1 Peter or his heart or his message to say what I'm saying. And then again, we'll go to some other scriptures to further support my position. So there's two main differences that Peter had in his context from the context that we're in. Two main differences. The first main difference we see is that Peter, in his writing, again, especially to servants being subject to masters, even just to the congregation more generally, is he was writing to Christians as an oppressed minority. He was writing to a people who were in no position to seek social change at all, right? I mean, if if Peter had written to the churches that he was writing to, remember in the very first verse he calls them exiles? (laughs) If he had been writing to these exiles saying, now here's the changes I want you to bring about in the Roman Empire, they would have just laughed at him, right? That would have been absurd, right? Christians are not going to bring about changes in the Roman Empire. If they survive, that's going to be pretty miraculous, right? So Christians in Peter's day were in no place to change social constructs, to change social policies, We see repeated over and over in this letter that Christians were indeed oppressed. In 1 Peter 1, verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And then back in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So these people were suffering, that affliction was coming upon them. They were being tested. And so that's one vast difference that Peter's context had from our own, right? Here in America, we as Christians, for one thing, we just have the right to vote, right? So we have to have some kind of say in our government institutions. And not only that, but Christians do make up a pretty sizable minority of our country. Of course, nobody knows how many you know, really born-again, authentic Christians are in America. You know, maybe it's 10%, maybe more, maybe less. Something like 50% of Americans at least claim to be affiliated with some kind of church. And so we, as Christians, do have just more social influence than what people had in Peter's day. And so that leads us to have to wrestle with different questions, right, and come up with different answers. So that's one big difference that we have from Peter's context that he was writing to. Second, and this is a way that we do overlap with Peter's heart, but again, our application is going to be quite different. Peter's main concern, especially in what he's writing in chapter 2, and I've spoken on this before, but Peter's main concern was the evangelistic effectiveness of God's people. His main concern was the evangelistic effectiveness of God's people. So look at 1 Peter 2 verse 12. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So just consider that as a heading. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What does it mean to have honorable conduct among the Gentiles? But then why do we want honorable conduct? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so that's what we want to happen as Christians. We want to conduct ourselves in the world in such a way that even if we are spoken of as evildoers, even if people have ugly things to say about us, when they actually go and examine our conduct, they won't have anything bad to say. In fact, they'll have to admit that God must be among us because of the way that we are able to persevere amidst affliction and we are able to do good things. And so we as Christians are to suffer well. It's the same thing that happened to Jesus when he was crucified, right? They were hurtling all kinds of accusations against him. They were saying that he had committed blasphemy, that he had done all kinds of evil things. And remember how they kept looking for witnesses to come and to prove these things. And what? They couldn't find any witnesses. They couldn't find anyone that had actually seen him do an ugly thing, even though they were accusing him of so many ugly things. And so Peter is exhorting us, encouraging us to live in the same way so that, again, people will see our good deeds and, as Jesus put it in Matthew, glorify God in heaven. And so by our actions, even though our actions cannot present the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news of Jesus dying and rising again. And I can't act that out with my emotions, right? I have to use words. But our actions can delegitimize the gospel. They can contradict the gospel, right? So if we're just living terrible lives, if we're always rebelling against anyone who's telling us to do anything, or if we're committing adultery or any other kind of terrible thing, then we may speak a really good talk, but nobody should believe us, right? If our actions are corrupt, if we're not living in a righteous way. And so when Peter was exhorting the Christians that he was writing to, to live in subject to human institutions, so again in verse 13, he's saying, be subject to governments. And in verse 18, where we read, he's saying, servants, be subject to masters. And then in 3.1, where we're going soon, wives, be subject to husbands. The reason why he's saying this is simply because he's trying to help Christians keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He's saying, live in this way so that nobody will have anything bad to say about you, so that the gospel of Jesus Christ may be held up, and so the gospel of Jesus Christ may advance. We see this especially clearly in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 16. So this is kind of the conclusion of this section. There he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, he will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So just hear Peter's heart there. Hear what he's saying. Be ready with a gentle answer. Have your conduct pure so that in all these ways you may be able to win the lost to Jesus Christ. Now, what's very interesting to me about the the contrast in Peter's context versus our own is that the context that Peter was writing to was an essentially conservative context. And by conservative context, I just mean that the Roman Empire and the people of the Roman Empire were mainly interested in conserving their cultural traditions. They didn't want dramatic social change. They wanted the empire united. They wanted everyone on the same page. And so the empire, the Roman Empire, was fundamentally against social change. And so in that way, when Peter was advocating for Christians to be subject to all these authorities, he was basically advocating for Christians to not pursue social change, again, for the sake of the gospel, so that nobody could speak ill of us, like we were disrupting the laws or disrupting the empire, right? We're not mainly revolutionaries. We are mainly people who love Jesus Christ and want others to know him too. But our context is very different, right? We live in a fundamentally progressive context, not a fundamentally conservative context. So in our context, it's spoken of very highly in our culture, movements of social change, movements of social progress, right? This goes back to the anti-slavery movement, right? Which people on every side of the political aisle now will look back and thank the Lord for the good work that was done to abolish slavery. You know, Abraham Lincoln is no longer this divisive political figure. You know, he's seen as our greatest president. So this dramatic social change is seen as a great thing. And then, of course, we have the civil rights movement of the 1960s that, again, people look back on it now and they're like, how could things ever have been different? Like, isn't it a great thing that that happened? 
And so we live in a culture now where social movements tend to be revered. Now, unfortunately, they're revered very uncritically, right? So people can come up with any kind of social change, and most Americans will be like, yay for social change, instead of thinking critically about, okay, is this a good social change or is this not a good social change? But we live in a context where social change is highly promoted. And so that means if we as Christians want to be a good witness to Jesus Christ and a good witness to the gospel, what are we to do? Now, again, obviously, I hope it's obvious to you, we as Christians cannot just embrace every social change, right, as a matter of trying to win over people to Jesus Christ, because many social changes are antithetical to the gospel, right? So social changes surrounding like liberating human sexuality in some way, like we can't embrace that as a positive social change because it's going to be against what we know of Jesus Christ and his teaching to us. And yet other social changes probably do support the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when we try to alleviate poverty, that's a good thing, right? Scripture tells us to alleviate poverty. When we try to make sure that justice is equal for the wealthy and for the poor, that's a, that's a good thing, right? Scripture advocates for justice to be fair to the wealthy and to the poor. And there's many other things. You know, protecting unborn human beings. That's a good social change that we can advocate for. So there are social changes that we can advocate for. And I would submit to you that if we as Christians just take this posture of sitting back and saying, no, we don't worry about society. We don't worry about laws. We don't worry about those kind of things. Then the Gentiles, unbelievers, will see our behavior and they will wonder if we're really good people or not. They'll wonder if we're really you know, following Jesus Christ? Are we really this new humanity that God is bringing into existence through Jesus Christ if we don't care about the poor or if we don't care about many other unjust social situations around us? And so I would submit to you that it is important for us as Christians to care about social issues. But again, as I said at the opening, Our concern for social issues, our care for social issues must never compare and certainly must never exceed our love for and our care for the gospel. So that's where I want to go now. Why is it that we want to hold the gospel most highly and hold every other social change as being less significant, less important than the gospel? Well, the first reason is just because Scripture itself presents the gospel as the most important news in all of human history, right? So, yes, various social issues may be important to one degree or another, but I will promise you that no social issue, no social problem that America faces, no legal problem that America faces compares to the problem that the gospel addresses, namely the problem of human sinfulness. Just look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. There the Apostle Paul says very clearly, I delivered to you as of first importance. Okay, there he says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Okay, what importance? First importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Beloved, this news is of first importance. That Christ died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And the reason why this is the most important news in all of human history is because this is the only news, this is the only way to deal with the problem plaguing the human heart, the problem of sin, the problem of idolatry, the problem of rejecting God as Lord and setting ourselves up as God. Did you know that every single social ill that we face, every last one, comes down to the problem of sin? That if there were no sin in the world, if no sin had ever been committed, society would be perfect. (laughs) Nobody would be suffering right now. Nobody would be sick. There would be no injustice. There would be no inequality. There would be no problem at all. The problem of sin is the problem that has led to every various social issue that we face. And that means if we want to address the most fundamental problem, then we want to address the problem of sin. And how do we address the problem of sin? 
Well, that's what Scripture is all about from beginning to end. In fact, the Old Testament makes up 75% of the Bible. 75% of the Bible is the Old Testament. And you know what we see there? We see people trying every last thing to overcome this problem of sin. (laughs) Trying every human mechanism we can come up with. Maybe we just need more rules. Maybe we need better government. Maybe we need a better king. Maybe we need a different place. Maybe we need more resources. You know, people think maybe it's all these, maybe we just solve this problem, then the problem of sin will go away. And yet the Old Testament ends in darkness. The Old Testament ends in failure because human effort Because our striving can never abolish, can never deal with the problem of sin. Only one thing, only one person, only one man can address the problem of sin. And that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he came and when he died, again, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, is of first importance. It says that he died for our sins. Beloved, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That means every last person on earth who has sinned deserves death because that is the just punishment. That is the just penalty of sinning against a holy God. And so how can we deal with this problem? How can we resolve the problem that we all deserve to die, that we are all under bondage to sin? Well, a representative man Jesus Christ had to die in our place. And because Jesus came and because he died in our place, he was able to take death itself and the power of death to the grave. And then he rose again from the grave to newness of life to show that he had power over all sin, over all death, so that those who believe in him will never die. This is the good news of the gospel. And this is the news that will transform every human society to whatever extent they believe it, to whatever extent they cherish it. It will transform every human heart to whatever extent we believe it and cherish it as the best news ever. The the reason why we so often don't treasure the gospel like we should is because we do place the problem in our own lives and the the problem of our cultures as being something other than sin. Again, we'll think that the problem in my life is, you know, it's the way my spouse is treating me, or it's that my job isn't meaningful enough, or it's that my kids are difficult, or, you know, we we think that that is the problem, and if we resolve that problem, then we will experience joy, right? Then our life will be better. But what Scripture wants to remind us over and over is that the problem is not outside of us. The problem is not in society. The problem is not in the home. The problem is not with anyone else. The problem is the sin of my own heart. And as soon as the sin of my own heart is dealt with, then I am free. Then I know joy, as Peter himself says, joy inexpressible and filled with glory. This joy that you can have, even if the whole world is against you, even if you're suffering in every way, If you are liberated from sin and death, then you have the best thing in all of life. And that's why the the most basic Christian practice that we all need to practice day in and day out is the practice of repentance and faith. We need to remind ourselves daily that we ourselves personally have sinned against a holy God and we need his mercy. And then when we go to God in that way and we say, Lord, I have sinned against you, I need your mercy. And we look to Jesus Christ and we see that in Jesus Christ, our sins are fully paid for and we are free forever, not because of anything we have done, but because of everything he has done. Then we know joy. And again, the world could be falling apart around us. You know, the wrong political party could be in power. Every social cause we hate could be advancing. Our families could be wrecking. Whatever is happening could happen. But if we know the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ, then our hearts are free. And we have a source of joy. We have a well of joy within us that wells up into eternal life. And so this, beloved, is what the world most needs. This is the only balm that will heal every wound. And what's more, the the gospel even tells us that it doesn't just address temporal matters. It doesn't just address matters of my unhappiness here and now on earth. Rather, it addresses matters for all of eternity. 
So scripture tells us that there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return and he will judge the living and the dead. That all those who fail to trust in Jesus Christ and lived according to their selfish desires will be punished forever and ever. And yet those who receive the free gift of God in Jesus Christ will experience life forever and ever. And beloved, we cannot measure eternity. We cannot even fathom a thousand years of eternity, much less 10,000 years or a million years. We will be there forever and ever. And if that is the case, how much more important is it to be reconciled with God who has eternity in his hands than to experience some earthly victory for our political party or for our social cause? Just because of the sheer length of time involved, we should see that the matters of this earth just pale in comparison to the matters of heaven. And so we as believers must be careful never to be divided over social matters or never to think that our main job is to advocate for some political party or for some social cause. But rather, our main mission in life is, again, repent of all sin, understand sin as the main enemy, get it out of our lives, embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord, Savior, and supreme treasure of our lives. And in that way, come to know a joy that can never be taken away. And beloved, it's only when we do that that we will actually be prepared in the first place to work for any kind of social cause or to work for any kind of social good. There are far too many examples of people in history that became so fixated on some particular social cause and they end up hurting everyone around them. (laughs) They end up being terrible human beings to everyone that they know because they have this great big objective out here that they think is worth fighting for. And we as ourselves can easily fall into that same trap and look just like the world and sinning against everyone even while we think that we can advance some great social cause if we do not first and continually repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. So let us never trade in the gospel for social activism in any other cause. But the gospel does drive social change. The gospel does drive social change. Being a believer in Jesus Christ is not just a matter of head knowledge, right? It's not just a matter of knowing the right thing, of speaking the right words, of showing up at church and offering praise to God, right? It is a matter of how we live day in and day out. As we saw in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, this is the promise of the gospel that I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you the heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you in your life sometimes feel powerless to obey the rules of God? Feel powerless to do the things that you know is the the right thing to do, but you just can't seem to do them? Beloved, it's because you are powerless in your own strength. But as we come to Jesus Christ in faith, as we believe in him, as we are filled with the Spirit of God, the main work of the Spirit of God in our lives is to give us strength to do the right thing. I mean, kids, do you struggle to obey your parents? I know I did when I was a kid. If you want the strength to obey your parents, it's not mainly a matter of trying harder of knowing better, it's mainly a matter of understanding how good Jesus is, that he has died to forgive you of all of your sins. And if you trust in him, you can know God forever and ever. And believing that good news so transforms your heart that you are then able to walk in a new way. You're able to walk in obedience to your mom and dad. You're able to walk in the way that God desires you to walk. You see, the gospel changes us in a way that no social movement could ever change us, that no law could ever change us, right? The law can only work on our external behaviors, right? The law can say murder is wrong, 
And then hopefully I won't murder, not because I'm a good person necessarily, or not because I don't want to murder, but just because I'm afraid, right? I'm afraid of punishment. I'm afraid I'll get arrested. I'm afraid I'll go to jail. And so the law can bring this kind of conformity to outward manners of behavior. But the gospel does so much more than that. The gospel changes us from the inside out. It takes out our heart of stone and it gives us a heart of flesh. So no longer do we obey God simply because we know we must obey God. We don't obey our parents just because we know we have to obey our parents. But we obey because we want to, because we get to. Again, because this news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, who is the king of heaven, in order to save us, who hated him, who were rebels against him, in order to save us. He didn't come to earth. You see, have you ever considered that Jesus could have come to earth and he could have been born into the household of Julius Caesar, right? He could have been born as a son of Julius Caesar. He could have been the next Roman emperor. And he could have asserted his rightful authority over all the earth with Roman armies, with Roman law, saying, everyone obey me because I am king and I am God. That would have been fully within the rights of Jesus to do that because he is king. He is God. He does deserve all worship and praise. And so for him to demand it, even at the point of a gun, even at the point of a spear, is right for him to do because he earns it. He is worthy of it. And yet he knew that demanding worship and praise at the point of a gun or at the tip of a spear was not worship or praise at all. Worship and praise, to be real, to be actual worship and praise, must come from the heart. It must come from a heart that wants to worship and wants to praise. And so what did he do? Well, instead of being born into a position of power, he was born into a position of a servant. He became poorest of the poor, right? We all know the Christmas story. Born into a stable. No room in the inn. This is how he came into the world. He wanted to show that he, even though he had all authority in heaven on earth, would come to earth as a servant and would submit himself even to the point of death. If that's what would so melt our hearts in love for him, if that's what would show his goodness, how worthy he is. And so when we believe in Jesus Christ, what happens is we do see the cross of Jesus Christ. And we see that he truly is King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet we see how low he became for us. And when we see that, we say, oh my goodness, how could there be anyone better than him? There is no one else like him. If he would love me that much, if he would give his life for me upon a cross, how could I not give my life for him? How could I not obey him in every way? No one else loves me like that. And so we become obedient from the heart. This is what Paul says in Romans 6:17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And so, beloved, when we proclaim the gospel, when we proclaim the good news of the crucified Lord who in love came to earth and suffered and died, so that those who were his adulterous spouse would be made a pure and spotless bride and would come to him. When we think of the gospel in those ways and we come to love and embrace Jesus Christ and we proclaim that message to others, it does a work on the human heart far, far deeper than the work of any social cause and the work of any law than the work of any human power could ever do. It transforms humanity from the inside out. And beloved, precisely because we are transformed from the inside out, we who were once people who formerly did not care about the poor, right? Before I came to know Jesus Christ, I was much more concerned about my own self, about getting the things that I wanted, right? I remember in the days before I became a Christian, I was mostly concerned about looking really cool, you know? So I wanted to make sure I always had the best clothes, you know, the best hair, that everybody would like me, you know. If I had to give up something like that to help somebody who was poor, I would have scoffed at that. I would have thought that would be stupid, right? I need to take care of myself. I need to watch out for me. But then I see the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
and I realize how poor I am spiritually, that I am a dead sinner who possesses nothing, and that Christ in his wealth has given up everything to come and purchase me, and all of a sudden my heart is broken for those who are poor. And I want to help them, and no longer am I interested mostly in my own image and looking really cool. But all of a sudden, I'm most interested in how can I help this person who's poor and who doesn't have the things that they need. And so you see, through the gospel, I become interested in a social cause. I become interested in changing society so that the poor are taken care of. But beloved, this is precisely why the gospel must always come first does no good to simply advocate for caring for the poor apart from any kind of gospel message. Because if you just advocate for caring for the poor, sure, you may get a few people to get on board for a little while, but their hearts will not be changed. They will not care for the poor from the heart. They will do what they have to do to conform to some outward standard of conduct. But the moment you look away, they're going to walk away. And so what do we do? We preach the gospel. We tell people of the beauty of Jesus Christ, of what he did on the cross for us. And we trust that as we proclaim that message, Jesus himself will change hearts to make people obedient from the heart, to care about things like poverty, like human trafficking, like slavery, like abortion, like all these other issues that people care so much about. We only become people who authentically care about those things as we are people who treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we look to the gospel first and foremost, and we hope that God will work in our hearts by his spirit through the gospel so that we will be obedient in every way. And the last question I want to answer is just what happens after that heart change, after we are aware of the social issues what do we do? Do we start, you know, a Christian political party to try and affect all the issues we want to affect? Or do we as a church mobilize all together on some particular social issue? Well, I would discourage us from starting a Christian political party or from making the church mainly about social change. But again, it is the case that we as Christians should care and must care about various social issues. Martin Luther King had a great quote where he spoke of the limited benefit of advocating for social issues. He said, It may be true that morality can't be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. And over and over again we see this. While the law may not change the hearts of men, it does change the habits of men. And so even though our ultimate aim is the heart, right? Our ultimate aim is to reach the heart through the gospel. We understand that sometimes it is good for the law to restrain people from doing certain evil things. And so we understand it as a limited good, as something that we should give ourselves to in a limited way. Again, understanding the gospel is what we should give ourselves to in every way, in every respect, and seeing that social causes, political causes, legal causes are something that, yes, we can give ourselves to in a limited way for the sake of loving our neighbor. Now, one word of caution as we think about what sort of social cause we may need to get involved in, and that is simply that every era of history is not the same, okay? Every era of history is not the same. So one thing I worry about, especially when I look at the American scene today, is people seem to assume that there always must be some injustice that is so great that it's worth going to war over, right? So we did have a time in American history where I would say there probably was a social cause that was worth going to war over, right? And that cause was slavery. And we as a nation did go to war over that issue of injustice. And through war, we abolished that issue of injustice. But that does not mean that because over a hundred years ago we had such a grave situation of injustice that we have a situation today that is equally grave or that is equally serious, Now, I know it's more exciting to live in a time when there's some great stakes, you know, some great cause that we have to live and die for. 
But the bottom line is I think that we can thank the Lord, we can be thankful that we live in a time where many of the most serious injustices have been dealt with. Now again, does that mean there are no more injustices? No, of course it doesn't mean that. There are still injustices. But we don't have to say that today there are things that are as important as slavery was or as civil rights were. And maybe the case that there's something and maybe we're just blind to it, But we need to think critically in every era about how serious the issues of injustice are in our day. And so what could be some of the issues that we as Christians should care about today? Well, let me just list a few. And again, to to list these things is not to say that all of our heart's attention should be drawn to these things or all of our efforts should go toward these things. But these are things that I believe that as the gospel comes into our hearts— should make us concerned about. And again, um, the, the purpose is not to address the Christian position on any one of these issues, just to say that Christians have a heart for these issues in some way. Okay, so here are some of the issues that we as Christians can see injustice and should work for a remediation of injustice. There are issues of abortion, of overseas slave labor. Many of the goods that we purchase are made with that kind of labor. There's the issue of a justice system that is tilted towards people who have expensive lawyers and people who are poor can't even afford a custody hearing or things like that. That's an issue of injustice that we should care about. We as Christians should care to some degree about environmental issues where the environment is irreparably damaged. We should care about racial disparities where people with different skin colors are treated in different ways. There's an enormous problem in our culture that's harming millions. Problems of pornography distribution, problems of prostitution. We should care to limit the distribution of these things. There's the issue today of transgender treatment for minors. Again, ways that people are irreparably changed, even though they're just children. Those are just a few of the issues. And again, I know there's many more. And so if we have a heart that is shaped like Christ's heart, we should look at these issues and we should see things that we do care about. We should see things where, again, we know we can't change the hearts of people by advocating for just social change or legal change. But wouldn't it be good if it were harder to do the wrong thing in any of these areas? If there were more oversight from legal representatives of each of these areas. And so we as Christians can care about these things and can pursue justice on these things. So seek to do good in these areas. And maybe there is some issue of injustice that you're very concerned about that I haven't named or that you just think that your brothers and sisters in Christ are not paying attention to. Well, when we get together as a church body, that's a great time to encourage your brother and sister to care about it, you know? If you see that, you know, there are many poor people in Pittsburgh and you just feel like they're not being taken care of and you feel like the church isn't doing what we should do to take care of the poor, well, then let's talk to one another about it because Scripture does tell us to care about the poor and we should care about the poor. Or if there's some other social issue that you think, oh, why aren't my brothers and sisters of Christ seeing this? I need to talk with them about it. Well, talk to each other about it. But again, we must always remember that what unites us is not our concern on any particular social issue. As clear as it may be from the scripture, what unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And so I hope in a way that does liberate us to care about social issues and to speak to one another about social issues while not having to worry that my brother or sister in Christ is going to reject me because I just suddenly disagreed with them on some social issue or some political issue, okay? I know that there's a number of political disagreements I have with many people in this room. There's a number of Uh, disagreements I have on social issues with people in this room. But you know what? I know I have a deeper bond with you in our hope in Jesus Christ than any type of disagreement on social issues may cover. So you know what? That makes me kind of interested and happy to talk about those social disagreements with you because I know it can be a friendly conversation where we won't end up hating each other at the end of it. You know, whereas if you go on Twitter or Facebook and try to have that conversation, you're going to get all kinds of bile spewed out on you, right? But we in the family of God can talk about these things because we care about these things while at the same time not coming to a point where we hate each other because we disagree about these things. And we can pray 
that the Lord would give us more unity of heart, more unity of mind, so that we can do more good for our neighbors, so that we can do more good for the poor, so that we can have more influence over government policy, so that we can help to protect more people from the many social ills that we see around us. And so I also encourage you to pray in that way. But again, ultimately, it is only the gospel that will bring the greatest social change. At the end of the day, beloved, our only hope for a perfect society is at the return of Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? That we know that as long as Christ tarries, as long as Christ remains in heaven, and as long as we are preaching the gospel, there will be problems on this earth. And so our greatest hope of social change, the only ultimate hope of social change we have is Jesus Christ will come back. He will judge the living and the dead. And then all those who hope in Christ will enter into this new kingdom where we know there will be no tears, there will be no injustice, there will be no problems forever and ever because Christ will be reigning perfectly in our hearts through the gospel. And so let's long for that day, let's pray for that day, let's work for that day by proclaiming the gospel. And as we have opportunity, let's do good to our neighbors through social and legal causes. Would you go to the Lord with me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good work that you have done in our nation. Lord, to not make your people a small persecuted minority, but to cause your gospel to abound and to increase and to give your people some measure of influence in our culture and society. And God, I do pray that you would help us as your people to steward that authority that you've given us well. Help us, Lord, to care about the poor. Help us to care about the oppressed. Help us to care about injustice wherever it's being done. And yet, Lord, again, I pray that you would help us to care all the more deeply for the glorious news of the gospel by which we have been reconciled to you forever and ever. Lord, I pray that you would now hear our prayers for ourselves, our prayers of confession and petition, and our prayers for the world around us.